I'm a student thinking about meaning making. Okay, that's great. No, I'm, I'm an alchemist thinking about meaning making. That's perfect. <laughs> that, no, 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 that's it. So, so yeah, let's, let's do that. We first met during the based mansion pre-pandemic weekend. We all took uh, LSD with Mencius Moldbug too. So that was uh, that was basically our introduction to Yong, who um, I thought was actually a very, very interesting thinker. And, you know, we all gave brief introductions about sort of like our own personal sort of ideas and the projects and our sort of intellectual projects that we're working on. And Yong had this very interesting alchemical um, take on uh, on Bayes' theorem, is that correct? Is that is that what you're mostly working with? Or? Um, I think I'm I'm working with information and meaning making. So I, my my influences are pretty diverse. There's there's surely some alchemy in there. Um, a lot of like just esoteric literature has has a lot of good stuff. So my primary traditions that I'm drawing from are probably like um, esoteric Taoism because I had uh. I have some relations with with the Taoist mafia in China. Um, That's amazing. What that is, what that is, is pretty complicated. Can you go into that some more? I want to hear more about this about the Taoist mafia. So I'm I'm writing a, a series of blog posts about this now because what it is is like there's there's nothing like it in America, um, of course. But I, I feel like with Tao, within Taoism, um, there's like there's a lot on propaganda in the esoteric canons. Of Taoism, so in the Tao Te Ching itself, there's there's several chapters on how like how the wise sage is supposed to maintain information control. Um, so there's like this verse that's like, okay, make sure the people's their bellies are full, their wills are weak, and their knowledge is low. And for the people that do have knowledge, make sure that they have no motivation to use it. So within China, um, this like Taoist mafia or this underground like Taoist network is actually it's. It's very canonically Taoist. It's not just like using the Taoist name. It's like very deeply Taoist. And so it's kind of hiding in plain sight. Um, most people don't know that like it exists as it exists. Everybody knows the people in the network and they conduct like daily operations and stuff. Um, but basically the person at the head of the network I know, um, they nominally work as a diviner, fortune teller kind of thing, and also a, a traditional Chinese medicine healer. But through that divination role, they, um, they're basically in charge of a lot of local decisions because all the important like business people go to consult with him. The government goes to consult with him. He also gets to decide where to like place buildings according to feng shui. Um, so through that, he's responsible for like a lot of the local policy making, but also he goes into like the central government in Beijing to chat with the central government for like a week every year to make sure that everything's going smoothly. And I kind of feel like like there's there's this like treaty relationship between the government and the Taoist underground. I mean it's of course it's illegible. There's no like written law about it. But um there's this like mutual mutual kind of like synergistic relationship where almost it's as if the Taoist underground has more power and it's just like the people in government nominally have these positions of power um and they're able to do whatever 
but they're kind of like in a way afraid of the Dallas Underground and afraid of them like messing with them too badly. So the Dallas Underground ensures that the government is happy and ensures that the government are the people with like full bellies, weak will, no knowledge. Wow. And while well, they they go on conducting everything they do. That's that's amazing. That's 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 kind of interesting because you know in, in Japan, you know, it's a very sort of like law and order structured society. But but yeah, they yeah. but but you know the sort of the government at the same time sort of like it up it sort of upholds the institution the underground institutions of the yakuza as as well in, in the united states i mean united states government has been working with the italian irish mafia for you know over a century now and then you know that's just within the the confines of of the structures of the government that we have right now but there's all of these sort of secret subversive like plants that were knocking on open doors. Like one of the things that I actually know from, and this is something I'm not, I'm not going to go into names, but there are, are some people within, you know, who came from sort of like Marxist political theory and so in sociology within the state department in the Trump administration, for example, because you have these networks of people and it's like, they're, they're merely attempting to situate themselves in and knock on an open door. I think there's something really beautiful about that. And it becomes this really strange thing that that is really difficult for most people to decode because they're sort of within the vector of meaning making themselves and they're create and part of that is creating that kind of dissonance and that openness of territory. So I think that's really, really interesting. Um one big difference of course with that is just uh the historical uh aspect of it. Because in America you see like you see these big crisis events like the Red Scare and then like um, certain meaning-making networks emerge from this and then like counter-cultures, counter-counter-cultures. And I think this is where like a lot of the networks are at. Is, but um, in China, like for example, the, the emperor has always had Taoist advisors and Buddhist advisors and Confucianist advisors. And like even today, the central communist government in China still has Taoist advisors and Buddhist advisors, like the top officials. Um, so there's 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 historical continuity here, and it's not so much just like, oh, like a truce with a separate external organization, because these like Taoist lineages, powerful Taoist lineages that have had influence in the state of affairs, I I, I feel like they've always kind of been there, like as in like thousands of years, always kind have of have they there. ever have they um, ever been like purged in some way, or or parts of them cleaved off, or well, the thing is, the lineages themselves, they're not legible institutions, so. I feel like in a lot of Western occult traditions, there's this, like, kind of desire to, like, say, oh, we came from this person, like, this person passed on their teachings to this person, this person passed on their teachings to this person. Um, and this happens, too, in Taoism. But I feel like whereas in a lot of the occult institutions in the West, there's a trend to uh, centralize around these things and to create, like, big legible bodies that are like, okay, so we're, we're built around this, like, one founder. And so you have, like, schools of thought built around, like, these monolithic figures. Um, whereas in China, I feel like for Taoism, there's, there are these figures, but at the same time, there's, like, a lot of small lineages that are just passed down in families. And, like, they wouldn't have texts. They wouldn't be famous. But there is kind of that continuity of teaching just through, like, one master teaching another disciple and that continuing through the families would you would you say that 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 has to do with a sort of like the the cultural inclination in the sort of like eastern culture towards like hermeticism and more sort of subversive 
like roles of of socialization would you say that that there is that is that the sort of historical component that might differ from perhaps you know these kind of like western underground more sort of like you know because you look at people like alger hiss it's like you know the way the communists and the spies and the people and the sort of western underground networks in which they sort of like in they they kind of elevated themselves to a celebrity status and it's it just seems to be that there's this reoccurring role of like a cult of personality around these like underground figures and then they become the sort of like dominant conversation holder and then it becomes this kind of like role of reverse virtue signaling but it's all garnered towards this concept of like i guess celebrity or something like that i don't know if that makes any sense well i don't think you can look at it through such a simple framework of just like culture difference because the thing is there's there's this whole like there's experiences that Okay, so just because like humans are biologically similar, because of this, there's certain experiences that different people, basically no matter the culture, will have if they do certain kinds of things. And so I feel like these spiritual occult esoteric traditions, um, a lot of times it's distinct groups exploring a certain class of human experience, a certain class of, I guess you could call it universal human experience that just there would be no reason to explore in everyday life or that you like because a lot of these experiences they're they're heavily like you can only access them through pretty specific kinds of practice like just going about your everyday like wage living and whatever you're not going to have these experiences so it takes like dedicated meditation or like dedicated analytical practice takes a certain kind of knowledge to be able to access these experiences but i've different like historically perhaps yes they may have all originated from like some kind of common ancestor tradition or something but there's all these different traditions that are similar in many ways just by being related to these esoteric human experiences but that exist in like radically different cultures so of course because they're like we're in the same world they're gonna have to interact with the cultures that they're embedded in um so these like esoteric traditions whether it be the eastern ones or the western ones they're going to interact with like the political context, economic context and all that. And they're going to do that in different ways and that will shape the tradition. But then when you look at like how the how exactly the political or the economic context or whatever shape the traditions that are embedded in them. It's not such a linear relationship because the information flows in both directions. It's interesting that you talk about this sort of like essential underlying universal component of accessing these kind of like weird ontological fractions. If we're living in sort of like a dualistic world where you have these sort of two sides of like a prescriptive reality and how to make meaning by actually cutting through that. How do ethiogenics play into all of this? Like, is there, is, cause that's something I wonder because I don't know anything about this in terms of the sort of like Eastern tradition. I think because this, this whole class of stuff is so separated from like mainstream academia there's there's not a lot of consensus on what it actually is um uh, i think a pretty popular theory is that like a lot of the mystic traditions are about exploring information space basically like there's kind of an analogy is drawn between informational entities and like physical entities um, but at the same time, it's not really, I, I feel like it's not so productive to think of these things dualistically. Because, for example, like, just living in the world, if you're a musician, you two are musicians, like, if, if you do music, 
you're going to have certain experiences and certain sensitivities that non-musicians just simply don't have. And music arises just like in different cultures from different groups of musicians that don't necessarily have much to do with each other. And the styles of music in these different places are very different, especially if they haven't actually had contact with each other. Um, but it's not like nobody really thinks of music as this like separate world. It, it's, it's not like an ontological thing. It's just, it's a class of experience that you have to have a lot of scaffolding. There's big monism energy here. I feel like the, the way that the esoteric arises, I, this is related to the theogenics of this, I guess. The way that like esoteric traditions and esoteric bodies of knowledge and experience arise isn't that there's this like ontologically divided portion. Oh, no, no, I agree. It's, it, it's, it's like a, it's a weird ontology. So, you know, Jean Gebser, who is a cyberneticist of, and, you know, a researcher of this kind of like the magic making and alchemy of like the Western world and in some, some Eastern traditions, like it's basically what you're doing is you're taking one world in the sort of monist sense. And you're, you're just taking certain social customs, certain social practices. And what you're doing is you're actually materially breaking those down by introducing some sort of like extraneous sacrament of sorts that actually sort of like widens and creates actual like material shifts in meaning so it's like there's not this this idea that like magic is is some is exists in some sort of like astral plane solely it's it's it you know it's all sort of like a part of the same cosmology and so that's one of the things that i think that's so kind of like bad about like 70s kind of new age culture is they think that they can access this outside when they're actually accessing something that's like deep more deeper embedded inside of this kind of dualistic framework than they're actually aware of. And so I think that that's kind of like the, the, the codification of that kind of like new age thinking is actually, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think whenever, whenever you try to introduce that like idea of fundamental divisibility, um, that's where you're going wrong. And that's like a central Buddhist idea too, like the, um, the indivisibility of all phenomena, how everything is codependent, how everything only arises from interaction with something else. There's no like independent existence that you're just like magically non It's a sec it's second order cybernetics or is a second order, like the culture of culture. The analogy with like music or art, I feel like fits pretty well because similarly in those domains, like it's just a certain class of knowledge, a certain class of practice that leads you to a pretty isolated field of experience that itself is very deep, but that at the same time is like in very obvious ways part of the real world. Um, I have, a, I have a question about this tweet that you had recently about going back to the four to five element system instead of STEM, how you feel like people are drowning in this, in trying to be able to have some kind of comprehension of the totality of knowledge as it grows and that it's it's actually like suffocating a lot of people's lives and that like commoners should have a technical or total language that is arranged around the traditional four to five element system instead of STEM if they're not trying to produce new technology. And I was kind of curious if you could go off on that because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, okay. So basically, I, I feel like w people try to understand the world, right? So like whenever you see phenomena, there's there's always this like 
I guess even this innate urge to like classify things, but not just to classify them on like a first order level. There's there's an urge to classify things on a first order, second level, second order, like recursively ad infinitum until like a basic level. There's this urge to understand and to classify. And so like from ancient times people have been doing this and like so you have ancient philosophy and like even the the contrast between like dualism monism animism non-animism monadism all these things like you see them recurring over and over in the history of philosophy and like whenever new empirical evidence is introduced perhaps it'll shift like the momentum of debate in one direction or another but there's always this like tension between these same recurring ideas and it's not like historically either side is gaining an advantage there's there's kind of oscillation between these ideas because a lot of times like the new observations that you're making of the world involve technology as an intermediary like there's certain things you can only observe if you have a microscope if you have these scientific instruments and because there's certain observations that you can only make with these um, instruments, there's certain thoughts that you're only going to have having made these observations. And so what, where I was going with this is basically like, I, I feel like normal people aren't going to be wondering about things that their observations or that their, their actual daily experiences don't lead them to wonder about. If you never see like atoms or cells and you never see anything that like seems like a direct effect of atoms or cells then you'd probably be pretty well off with like the best at the time understanding of a world in which there was no understanding of atoms or cells or whatever and also i feel like the for, i suggested the four or five element system in particular because the system is inherently it's it's metaphorical like the elements don't actually refer to today what we mean when we say like fire water air earth or whatever it refers to like a kind of very intuitive understanding of the essence or the characteristics of these things and i feel like normal people when they navigate the world and they're trying to understand things there's there's no drive towards rigor like when you're trying to understand the world i feel like for most people there's there's not an idea that like oh, I have to be, like, absolutely scientifically correct. Like, most people don't know the scientific method. Most people don't know Paparian epistemology. People, like, what is strived after is only a sense of knowing and not really, like, rigorous understanding. Right, which, which, I, thought, which I thought was actually interesting because you talk about the, the brokenness of using Deleuze and Guattari as a sort of, like, a, as an aesthetic framing without actually understanding it. I think that's yeah, probably... Yeah. <laughs> You know, and that's kind of what Justin Murphy tried to explicate with his book. He's like, actually, like, actually, this one guy is like, he's he's pretty found he he's, he has pretty strong foundational ideas actually. And if you took the time to explicate and understand these ideas, you might actually be a little bit horrified by them. But the but the ways in which the sort of the false uh, signifiers that surround it it's like it's a it's kind of like Bordeaux's Illusio concept of like. The, the, somebody says, oh, Deleuze and Guattari is cool. And that person just happens to be within the framework of like academia. And then another person says, oh, he's really cool. But underlined, it's like, no, he has all of these like 
dark hidden sort of like forces that are true like actually animating his thought that if you actually took the time to understand what like becoming meant you would be perhaps horrified of of Deleuze like of his epistemologies you know like yeah I mean I, I, I the core thing is pe- people are pretty bad at like understanding themselves and so like uh, I feel like from yeah from from the esoteric perspective I think the the essential esoteric secret um I've tweeted about this too like there's basically only one esoteric secret that's at the core of all esoteric traditions and it's that like it's the map is not the territory that's the idea that and that recursively and infinitely applied to everything is the esoteric secret but and like so I mean, you, you see, like, Baudrillard wrote about this, and, like, other people wrote about this, like, simulation, simulacrum, like, it's explored in the academic canon and everything, and there are people that understand it, but at the same time, there's people that read these books and think they understand it, but they don't. And so, like, if you if you look at the esoteric traditions, and you look at the esoteric texts in this context, like, I feel like a lot of them are are practices towards getting normal people to be able to understand this like especially if you look in the tantric traditions um there's like there's an idea of division in in some of the tantric schools between sutric practices and tantric practices and so the idea of tantric practices like there's these higher vehicles to enlightenment that you can pursue if you have sharp enough faculties but that are dangerous for commoners and that commoners shouldn't touch and sharp faculties like it's it's always like kind of skirted around even in the literature but it literally just means like if you're smart you can like understand these things and i feel like that distinction the like the map territory distinction to certain people it's not that hard to present and especially if you've had certain kinds of experiences, if you've uh, tasted emptiness, would be what it's called. Um, if you've tasted emptiness in certain domains, then it should be pretty easy to like generalize the idea of like emptiness in one thing to to like conclude. Oh, actually, everything's kind of interdependent, and actually, like this is the nature of symbols. This is how symbols are, and really to like gain that deep understanding of symbols, ultimately, at least on an intellectual level. But then you could also like just see these words, see these texts, and only be engaging on it at a symbolic level and be like reading all about like map and territory and map and territory are both just like are both just symbols to you that you don't still don't know how to use and then like engage with. So there really there is no way to like present this explicitly through text. And I, I feel like if you read a lot of um especially like late twentieth century philosophers, you see a lot of different philosophers in in the preface to their books, they'll be like, Oh, I'm about to write all these ideas, but you're really only gonna understand them if you've already like kind of come to these ideas yourself anyway. So like Wittgenstein does this, I, like Heidegger does this, but like Laruel talks a lot about this with his non-philosophy. How the precondition of understanding, which is which is a requisite in itself to sort of understand philosophy, then renders philosophy almost non-philosophy. And so he talks about the the concept of non a lot. I think he's actually a really interesting thinker. And then a lot of people within the analytic school, they talk, I don't know if you know Wilfred Sellers, The Myth of the Given. 
And so with that's that's a whole other ball game. But I'm I'm really fascinated in this idea of sort of like the oneness of the limit experience and self-binding mechanisms. Like one of the things, do you know about the Skopsy Russian Orthodox Church sect that would chop off their breasts and they became eunuchs and stuff like that. I'm interested in your theories on things like that or like, or in the opposite end of the spectrum, like the cult of Sybil, which was in Rome, which was like a very sort of orgiastic, you know, eunuch um, cult of priests, you know, with like blood sacraments and these sort of like wild sexual, like, like, how does that all fit in? Because I'm, I'm just interested in your takes on these like historically specific I don't think that like spirituality itself is is one thing. There's there's this category that's used like we, we call these traditions spiritual traditions, and I I guess like there's some common elements like we see the worship of gods, the worship of spirits, and call them spiritual. But then within these different traditions that invoke the names of gods and that call themselves spiritual just as a name like i don't think that that always refers to similar experiences when i'm pointing at the distinction between map and territory as like the one spiritual experience i think i would be referring more here to mystic experiences perhaps gnosticism like in in any gnostic tradition what you come to know is that is is the nature of map and territory and these different traditions that culturally are related to uh to like spiritual traditions i guess to the church or to different cults or whatever um and have these different uh bodily practices that like pr produce very extreme sensations they're not necessarily mystically motivated when you look at the spiritual practices of different historically specific i guess institutions traditions whatever you'll you'll see similarities between them and like the best way to learn about this is just to actually like read specific ethnographies um that talk about like what happens here but a lot of times like a better framework of understanding these traditions isn't necessarily like an emic view um of like actually like thinking how, what does this have to do with like the gods they're exploring or whatever but just like looking at it from from a very mundane perspective like maybe these people are just like sad and want to harm themselves like that's that's like a totally real thing that cults are built around and like like there's there's a lot of good stuff in like the spirit world and whatever but like at the same time there's no need to give a lot of credit to every practice and if it looks really really dumb then like it probably is well, that, that's kind of why I find myself, you know, with a lot of these kind of like the way in which like cults and serial killers has kind of been like normalized and made like palatable for like normie type people. Like I find a lot of the, the stuff that they talk about, like, you know, like the, even things like, you know, that like Jim Jones, for example, like there's nothing that actually interests me about about those cults or like Children of God, because to me, they, they kind of seem like uninteresting boring stupid cults they're not like actually like cool interesting strange um you know like there's no there there's it like it lacks that element to, to me it's like this is just like you're just normalizing something that's like kind of profane but it's not like all that interesting or insightful and they're and i, I think that's why these traditions even like the good traditions are esoteric in the first place 
society, of course, has evolved to an equilibrium. And if it hasn't, then things would be different. But like the fact that everything is at the way it is, it like everything is kind of at an equilibrium. So like a lot of times, like especially with information, when you look at text and when you look at like, okay, why does this text say this or whatever? Um, oftentimes it's it's very useful to like step outside the text and look at the text as an object in the world, and think rather than like rather than thinking about the words in the text and the meanings that the words in the text convey think like okay how did this text come to be who made this text why does this text say what it say what use does do these words have perhaps think about it mimetically think about like how how this how these meanings how these words are are propagated why they would be that way and so the esoteric traditions to like if we were to have clear exoteric accounts of like the structure of esoteric traditions and how they related to the rest of the world and everything like that itself would require a very profound understanding of the very map territory relationship that the esoteric traditions are trying to publicize and the fact that like that isn't a public thing makes that just impossible yeah I have I have a, I have a quick question. So with within Gnostic traditions like the Cathars, I'm what one thing I'm specifically wondering is how, you know, is sort of like accessing this concept of like the divine within by basically rebuking the the world and the material and the flesh which is satanic unless you're a, a perfect. So there's but isn't there isn't there a dualism to Gnosticism itself? And isn't there this concept if we're looking at one world philosophy, basically, isn't the concept of Gnosticism inherently sort of dualistic in a sense? Like like how can you access map and territory if you're only accessing it within? Or is that knowledge that only certain people outside of the the the, the, the that only the perfects can acknowledge through sort of like self-sacrifice or asceticism. You you see this in a lot of different traditions, but um I think that like a lot of times the core texts of traditions or the core teachings of traditions don't actually reflect the ultimate state that these traditions are trying to get you to because from the ultimate state you don't you don't need teaching. So again, this is what I'm saying like when you look at the texts don't look at them for their internal meaning. Look at them for their purpose. Because from the dualistic perspective, or from the normal perspective, from the mundane perspective, you can't grasp the ultimate state through words. And it's better to have a dualistic view that motivates you to do the correct practices that are going to get you there than to have a view that like nominally might look like what somebody from the ultimate state would be more likely to say without actually understanding it. So I, I, in a lot of these traditions, like the texts that are propagated and the teachings that are propagated are more devices to get people to do the correct practices than like glimpses at, glimpses at truth. Because glimpses at truth don't really actually do anything. Well, that's the I think that's the interesting thing about the way in which our kind of political elite establishment, they sort of go off the Straussian model or the Schmidian model of like the noble lie. But the problem is they're not artful and creative enough to like actually get away with the sort of... It takes a lot of skill to craft the good noble lie. <laughs> yeah. And so, but like the issue is like Nancy Pelosi 
like or Chuck Schumer, like they're so stupid. They couldn't they, yeah. that, that that like the Straussian lineage of which the sort of like neoconservative neoliberal order comes out of in which which shaped their political philosophy and the cynicism isn't artful enough to actually like be able to execute the thing that they want because they're somehow so a part of that as well, you know? And I, I feel like you can, you see this distinction, not just between like the good esoteric traditions and like mainstream politics or whatever. You see this same thing like within esoteric traditions and, or I mean, between esoteric traditions and even within. Because like, for example, the cortex of Taoism, like the Dao De Jing and the Yi Jing, um, I've, the the memes Taoist memes are very very well crafted, like in for example like let me just give an example like the idea of Wu Wei, um often translated as non doing, so like for adepts for sages like non doing is often like it's an analogy is drawn to embodiment so it's like this way of of going beyond just like conceptual thought letting go of all your obstructions and like reaching your full potential through allowing yourself to embody the totality of your awareness and ability and everything and so that's the non-doing in that but then also like Wu Wei translated non-doing as literally like mundanely understood non-doing for the commoner actually just means like not doing stuff, not rebelling against the government, being in your place. So, like, the, this, like, like, and th it's literally the same meme. In every context that it's used, it makes sense from both of these interpretations. So, like, I feel like that's just, that's such expert design to be able to, like, a two-word meme to, to be able to guide, like, the adepts who are actually practicing within esoteric Taoism to like the highest levels of power and at the same time to be like political propaganda for the commoners and then like the commoners feel like they're getting the same thing like oh yeah the Taoist sages are also being taught this and just like totally blissful unaware in their places like it's like there, there's a lot more examples like this within Taoist memes but meanwhile I feel like for, for Buddhist memes it's it's different like Buddhist memes are like are like shit posts like <laughs> like I feel like it Every enlightened person, and like when you, when you look within tantric Buddhism, um, the criteria for enlightenment are very different from from the criteria for like what sutrics are looking at at enlightenment. And so, I'll like, I, I won't go into too much detail about this because there's there's arguments in within Buddhism for like why this shouldn't be publicized and like how sutric vehicles are good for practice and the. the I feel like exactly the reason this has to be the case, like Taoist esoteric texts don't have to be protected from common practitioners because like normal people, when they, even if they look at the esoteric texts, because they're so well designed, they're going to get like a useful understanding from it anyway. So in a lot of Taoist esoteric texts, there's this notion that like, oh, this is what the gods will gain from it. This is what the sages will gain from it. This is what the normal people will gain from it. And it's like different for each, but it's good in any case. Meanwhile, in Tantric Buddhism, you have esoteric texts that say everything very bluntly as it is. And there's all these systems. It's shrouded in twilight language that like only teachers can teach you. Um, and then like, there's like all these like, vows that are like oh if you like read this without the proper empowerment you'll be damned like thousands of lifetimes of hell and like like no you can't even like that's a lot better than taking somebody and sort of being like 
okay, here's Deleuze and Guattari. You have, there's no punishment for your misinterpretation of these texts. Like there's no, like, like there's no, there's no cosmological concept of like having to undergo like a, a damnation or sort of like a, a, the process of original sin, which I think, I think that's really interesting. And another thing I think it's funny is like when you talk about memes, it's like, and we talk about the sort of bad meaning making of, of the sort of leaders within our established political system. It's like their concept of a meme is like literally responding to you with a gif of like Beyonce, like shaking her head and rolling her eyes. Like, like, like that's what they think has some sort of like synergistic symbolic power, which is like so fucking ridiculous and funny to think that like, it's like you have no concept of, of anything it's it's amazing yeah i kind of i have this like tier list of information control within like large macroscopic meme complexes um i feel like the way that the Taoists do it is is obviously best where you have like these very simple memes that are just they're apt for many different interpretations and have good interpretations no matter who you are and then there's this like there's the buddhist way of doing it which is like you have memes appropriate to like each level of society and this concept within buddhism the con there's a concept of like the six realms um and like different kinds of creatures inhabit each realm like there's there's demons there's hungry ghosts there's humans there's gods whatever but like really it's it's i i think it's a metaphor for the stratification of information and how like different groups um there's like different strata of information flow and there's very deliberate like control of information flow within each of these strata and like censorship of each strata from the other one so that you're not exposed to like the information that you shouldn't be exposed to are you saying that like some of the demon or hungry ghost stuff that's like more for commoners or no yes um but it's it's more complicated than than just that like there's yeah there's a lot in the literature uh-huh I've always wondered about, like, sometimes when people talk about Buddhism, like, they fail to talk about traditions it's existing on top of, with, like, Bon, the way that, like, in Tibet, Buddhism was, like, built on top of Bon, or, like, graphs on top of? Well, it, it's, it's very hard to talk about Buddhism in general for exactly these reasons, because there, there's a Buddhist kind of mythology, which provides, like, a reservoir of words, and I say a reservoir rather than a dictionary because the words aren't mapped to meanings it's just like for example hungry ghost god human and these don't necessarily mean them anything by themselves but by the way they're used within different traditions um that's how they derive their meanings so like when i talk about buddhism in general it's it's pretty much i can't talk about it without planting myself very firmly within a particular tradition's context because these same words are used in so drastically different ways by different traditions and depending on their own so which tradition context. are we in right now the idea of the stratification of of these layers and also like the control explicit control of information explicit like keeping the tantric secret secret um all of that that comes from generally tibetan buddhism mostly the nima school um divides Buddhist practice into nine yanas, nine vehicles, and that's where I personally have like my gain most of my understanding of like how information control works within these systems. Yeah, but um, I I feel like this information control, like the the way the Buddhists do it works, the way the Taoists do it is better, and then you have like um the way it works in like America, where you just have like 
public information everything and like misunderstanding galore. What do you think of the Talmudic annotation, multi-answer annotation type of uh, information control? Yeah, yeah. I, I okay. I, I would place that between um probably between the the Taoist version and the Buddhist version because in in there, there is still. Like, yeah, the same public text is available for all, but, like, commoners know that, like, oh, I'm not allowed to study Kabbalah because God told me I'm not allowed to study Kabbalah. Um, in Taoism, there's no need for that. Like, you're not allowed, like, you're you're allowed to do whatever. You're just, there's there's no reason you ever would, and you per- don't even have the will to do it. I feel like in, in the Jewish tradition, there's still that feeling that, like, oh, I'm being kept from something, even if it's for a reason. And, like, when the more you add, I feel like, the more you the more layers of information you add the more unjustified layers of information you add um the more unstable it becomes like no matter how strong your faith is or whatever um when you have to like actively exert your will to maintain this idea of like i can't do this i'm not allowed to do this or like to maintain this symbolic entity or this powerful symbolic entity that has no direct reference in the real world besides your teaching, but, or I mean, I guess these like symbolic reference that aren't self enforced by positive feedback loops. Um, so like the teaching of restriction, these kinds of things, because they're, they're only enforced by directly by your teaching and not by feedback loops, self-existent in the memes themselves or in the world. Um, the more that's the case, the more unstable they are. So I, I think that's how that's how I build my tier list in the first place. So, <laughs> is this the power of Christianity in terms of the extreme simplicity of certain forms of Christianity, or what do you think is the most extreme simplicity? Or do you think that like Taoism? Taoism has the best out of any tradition that I know of, but this is definitely something that can be actively designed, and. I, I would hesitate to say that it's the best that anybody can possibly do. With Christianity, um, the, the way that Christianity does it is is very, very good. But I feel like the problem within Christianity is that it's too hard to get to the good stuff. Like, it, it's so easy, even if you're really, really smart, to get caught up in, like, in the symbol stuff because there's nothing in there suggesting you towards, like, the deeper esoteric interpretations of it that no doubt some very few people have. Whereas in Taoism, I feel like there there's more of a push. It's, it's easier to get to the good stuff if you're capable of getting to the good stuff. Whereas in Christianity, even if you're capable, there's there's still a danger of getting stuck in the symbol play and not actually accessing the core. But, what, but when we're talking about the core of it, I feel like someone who, like, hasn't even read the Bible, who just, like, knows a couple things, like, Christ is love, Christ kind of, like, came into, God came into the human, and so it's like, there is God, and God was within the human, and in coming into the human, saved the human, and that there's always, like, like the kind of Christianity of, like, of a person who's committed a crime and says at the end of their life, I accept Jesus, and I, and I know that I am loved, or something, like, isn't that pretty? Yeah, yeah, I I feel like, Okay, so I feel like um, when you evaluate these different traditions, you can evaluate them also differentially based on like the level of understanding, like the simple, like how good it is at simple levels of understanding versus at like deeper levels of understanding. I think Christianity is 
is very very good at both of the extremes like where you have the most basic understanding of like okay you you heard the gospel once from like a single evangelist and what good that can do for you versus like if you deeply understand like all the symbolism in the actual bible and you realize where the churches are going wrong and you realize like all these like social trends that it's pointing at and all that and you like deeply incorporate that and it's christianity is really good at both these extremes but where is where it fails is in the middle where you're like okay i'm a I'm a dedicated Christian. I want to like learn the Bible and then like you read the Bible, but then you're also being fed with all these like diluted church interpretations of it. And you just get like totally misled and you don't know what you're doing. And then like you stray away from God and you're like depressed and like anxious and all that. Um, I, I feel like there's, there's a great danger for this in just how the Christian infrastructure has played out. Um, because there's this idea of like authority in the churches. And I feel like there's there's a tendency in Christianity to um I, I think the main flaw I see with Christianity is how there's and perhaps it's just a problem with how it's been spread to because I know like in the Bible itself this is explicitly warned against. But in Christianity as it's degenerated to today, there's there's too much trust in external powers like there's too much trust to like whoever taught you christianity has the correct interpretation of it or the priest has the correct interpretation of it or that the church has the correct interpretation of it like in the bible itself of course it says like yeah you should value god above your parents above your brother and you like your love in god and your faith should keep you steadfast and that you shouldn't trust the powers of the earth and that even like satan will sow discord within the churches themselves and all this but of course the churches see this because they have control over like the hegemonic interpretations of the bible and they'll corrupt that too and so that's that's the danger of it because i feel like christianity because it enforces the power of these top-down institutions um, that's where the danger comes from. Whereas, it's so weird, though. It's so weird, though, is, because it, it kind of yeah. seems like, like, you know, and, it, uh, you know, Barrett and I talk about this a lot because Barrett's, you know, an, an Episcopalian and like, and I, I'm not currently a Christian, but, you know, I have, I have sympathies for a lot of aspects of Christianity. And, and I think both of us have sympathies towards the Eastern Orthodox Church. The way that the Eastern Orthodox Church has these kind of like terminating points in these nations in a way where, you know, the Armenian or Eastern Orthodox Church, the, the Russian Orthodox Church, like there are certain ways in which that prevents this kind of infinite fracturing that certain kinds of Protestantism has that people who are critics from Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism would call the like uh, the Judaizing heresy, where it's just like you keep calling yourself chosen. But then with Christians, it's just like they could just keep splintering. So like, is that uh, like, how do you re reconcile that? with? Okay, so. It, it's very difficult to design good top-down institutions, no matter how good you are at this. Like, because of the transient nature of everything, like, no matter how you design the church, no matter how you design these systems of propagation, systems of information propagation, if you're designing it at a particular point in time, you... Maybe you can look 100, 200, 300 years into the future, but you're not going to be able to look 2,000 years into the future. One thing I'm actually interested in is the, is this concept of like the the non top down institution, like you say, we, like you would say with Taoism, with with the Tao, and the sort of ways in which it's about mapping and territory. Like this kind of goes to sort of put things in, in a cruder political sense. It kind of goes back to my it, this is my sort of issue with anarchism, for example, like in which like 
you can be the anarch. You can be the person who contains, who engenders this. But at, at a certain point, power will subsume those who don't prescribe to a scripture of top-down power. Like so, so at what level are these? And this is sort of the issue with even even Christianity within Rome. Like because it actually didn't, because early Christianity didn't have that embedded framework. You know, they were massacred by Nero. They were, you know, what I mean. So it's like, at what point do these things just are they just relegated to this to the esoteric tradition? This is discussed very explicitly in the Buddhist traditions, and also this is a key concern of the Taoist underground that I know some things about just personally. So, in in the Buddhist traditions, Padma Sambhava is famous for saying the sutric vehicle will. Like so, he created sutric ta and tantric vehicles, and then there's the idea of the highest vehicle, dzogchen or ati yoga, which is like just personal instant realization without like without a vehicle, the vehicle of no vehicle. Um, so he said, okay, so these sutras that I create will probably last a few hundred years. Tantra Vajrayana will last a few thousand, and Zogchen itself will last forever. And so there, there was this idea already of like this division, like okay, the the temporary for this culture, transient top down institutions of sutra that I create, they're probably going to last a few hundred years. These different institutions, lineage, this idea of lineage, a uh, secret transmission, esoteric transmission, um, that will last a little bit longer, that can last for a few thousand years, and then. Like, but the fundamental human experience that that's there that both of these vehicles are trying to point at that that experience and however you get there, um, that's permanent that that'll last forever, um. And so I feel like that was the core idea he was getting at. And so I feel like in any age, if if you're a highly realized being like Padma Sambhava, sure you can go go about like designing all three or whatever but at the same time you have to be aware of your limitations and like when you're designing systems or like politics i guess when you're espousing your political philosophy deciding political praxis in your own life there's there has to be an awareness of of temporal context like how long even like how long do you expect to live and what are you going to do within that lifetime like are are you really trying to design the perfect system for the world as it's going to exist like like generations after you die where you don't know how technology is going to evolve and you don't know like what that's going to do and like so i i feel like right now for example does um transitioning to like how the Taoist underground is thinking about this there's this idea that like the current uh very calcified top-down institutions as they exist are pretty vulnerable to collapse um so there's there's this idea of what we should be doing is building peer-to-peer -peer communities. We should be building lineages. We should be building networks. We should be building systems of resource and idea exchange that are able to self-sustain if these top-down institutions do collapse. And if, for example, currency and like national currency, all of that, if that disappears, we should have resilient um like uh social frameworks that can withstand that um if these top-down institutions don't collapse that's that's fine too these like the social institutions that we're building would still be good regardless so would you say that these social institutions are sort of like an allegory for predeterminism and i think this is one of the things that 
separates a lot of things. And this is where I think the Hegelians get things very, very wrong is this idea of like the teleology of man, the teleology of history. Is it an unrealistic goal? Because part of me feels like one of the things about Christianity and even the sort of like teleological um, ideologies, and especially like with Hegel and the Hegelians and people like that, is this idea that, yes, obviously humans ending or teleology is absolute bullshit, but in striving for that, you're actually fulfilling an evolutionary biological sort of like spirit or function at the ultimate level nothing's an allegory for anything everything's just as it is like no no like literally in, in china when i was in china this person that i was working with literally he resigned from his position as southeast asia coo of this massive corporation to build these networks so that if the top-down like institutions collapse during his lifetime, then he'll have something, and that, like for his family, for his children, like this is being done by the people in the Dallas network and everything that's associated with like they're literally. It's not like oh, I'm gonna like put this apocalyptic prophecy out there as like a teleological thing suggesting what you do. It's literally like drop everything you have and go build peer-to-peer -peer networks right now because the apocalypse is upon us. I feel like this is how we kind of should approach myth anyway like if if the purpose of myth like symbolic experience itself is phenomenal like you you have the phenomenon of symbolic experience but if symbolic experience never makes it way makes its way into the real world then it's it's pretty much worthless like if you're spending all of your time thinking about like oh am i gonna go to heaven or not or like if you're thinking about like teleology and you're thinking like oh does god love me and you're like devote all of your like your whole day just like thinking oh does god love me without actually doing anything and you're just like trapped in the symbol world that never makes its way out of the symbol world for whatever reason then you're then you're doing it wrong like all of these <laughs> but i but I, but i would say but i would say i would actually say most crap practicing Christians are actually maintaining uh, a relation to the outside of the symbol world better than the sort of like low-grade milquetoast variation of kind of like Gnostic atheism that permeates most people in the West. So it's like, even though they're still in entrenched within that, the domain of the sort of like symbol spirit world, they're actually fulfilling on an ontological level, they're actually doing more they're actually engaging in more practice-based ways of living. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and this is why these this is why these traditions were esoteric. Again, all the information control was there for a reason. If you think you're like you're so gnostic and you're so brilliant and spiritual and whatever, like like even though all the texts have these warnings in them that are like, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're not who you think you are, you're doing it wrong, put down this text and go find a competent teacher. Even though, like, all these warnings are there, like, of, of course everybody's gonna be like, oh, no, that's to somebody else, that's not to me, and just, like, ignore it and go on anyway. But, like, no, like, all, all like, I, I would advise people to, like, think about it, but no, that's not gonna work, because, because you're not, you're not smart enough to think about it and figure it out. Like, and, and so the fact that like these esoteric systems, I feel like, I, I don't think any of these like spiritual people anticipated something like the internet. Like I, the esotericism or like this, this actual secrecy of these esoteric traditions wasn't designed to withstand something like the internet where like just any like dumb person can just go on the internet and like find anything they want. Like, so there was definitely a very, very powerful attempt 
to keep the knowledge to the people that would actually benefit from that from them. But I, I think that definitely is collapsing, and people that probably shouldn't have access to these things do have access to these things, and and that's a problem that that like something could maybe be done about, but I'm not sure what. <laughs> I, I have I have a question. Are you familiar with these sort of like online meta information sort of memetic cults that are are popping up? Like there's this one in specific, uh, Tumple. Do you know about this? I, I Alex, you might want to. You know, I I because I, I'm really interested in strange what what strange uh, alliances may form from this kind Tumple's of. Tumple is a cult that's like really um, open about that they're a cult. And uh, they they have like people that uh, came from like digital marketing spheres and very kind of like very media savvy, right? And they're they want people to like get rid of all of their items. Like, uh, so you're supposed to digitize all of your information and like shed physical things. You wear all white. They also speak in this strange. Lots of cults do this thing where they make you, you know, hoteps are super into this. Yeah, like, yeah, okay. Changing the spelling of things yeah, yeah, so that yeah, you're yeah. not like, you know, getting uh, fucked over by word magic. You know, and of course they have all these like cleanliness things about, you know, mold and what kind of foods you can eat and stuff. But but their thing is that they're, they are uh, reaching out to like e-girls and, and uh, reaching out to stream different people like that and basically saying you are so powerful do not let uh, do not let these things like uh, OnlyFans and Instagram and all these things make money off of you you as a you know a beautiful young woman or something are a cult leader use your cult power to but then they're and they have a lot of like sex workers in the cult but the thing is then they're also very like they're also very anti uh, they're also kind of like there are like sex workers that do weird like thought patrolling online where they like hate on that shit because okay. they're like from it in a way. So it's like, uh, and they include like, uh, you know, lots of people from like music and and music and sex work and tech and marketing and stuff. But it's kind of small. Yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. T u m p l e. It's called Tumple. Yeah. 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 I, I, we just okay. came across, I came across mm. it because like there was someone following us on Twitter that like also followed them. And then this um, like a oh. yeah, producer <laughs> and rapper that we know, I think used to uh, used to be in them. But yeah, he he defected. He escaped. Uh-huh. But uh, I haven't asked him much about it because I'm kind of afraid. There's, to. A, there's a bit of a summoning aspect once you interact with those people. Sorry, what'd you say? Do you know much about? Like, I think the it was like two. Like, I mean, they have. There's like public or, 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 like, uh, information about it, and then you can also just like. So there was like some you know clickbaity article. Like I don't know if it's BuzzFeed or some other thing like that about this media savvy. It came out of weird Facebook. So like I have a friend who was like involved in Facebook memes at like a high level, where like he knew some of these people that had then broken off from that to start this. Once I told him about it, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, like like practically are you are you interested in actual like personal design of of sort of like thought systems or myth systems i i think i'm 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 interested in memetics in general i'm interested in the propagation of information because i i feel like understanding i mean like what do you try to understand things of course it's like it's related to control like if you understand something then you have the capacity to control it so it like Yes, I I am interested in design in like if by design you mean like thinking about like observation and then like systemization of observations for the purpose of like enabling better control. But I don't have like 
cult leader ambitions. I'm so yes, I'm interested in memetics. Yes, I'm interested in like propaganda. I'm interested in these things. I'm interested in general about like information propaganda, um, information propagation, and like how to control information, how to uh control the dynamics of like who knows what and meaning making, how to control who makes what kinds of meanings, how to like all all this all this. But would you like, would you say that in a sort of post-corona world where we're kind of on the internet all day, would you say it's easier to, to create those vessels of control now? Because in my, because in my opinion, I think, I think it is like part of me is even in, even in the practice of what we do with contain, how we try and make it a cosmology of sorts with like music and art and like political theory, like by create, by engaging in the concept of world making, at this juncture in time, like part of me woke up and I had like this weird nightmare of like, what if this becomes like a three person cult or like, what if like, <laughs> like what if this becomes a cult? Like I had like an actual sort of fear that like, whoa, like what if like, and what's, and so I'm interested in that. Yeah. yeah there, there's multiple levels to this. First of all, with, with regards to that fear of becoming cult, I think, Yes, it's definitely very important to actively design how you spread your information. Like, you can't just say, like, the absolute truth, like, at every <laughs> moment and, like, everything that you, like, exactly how you feel like it should be said, just, like, out of impulse and, like, expect good things to happen because that's that's not how information works. Should you expect persecution from that? Or what, what, sh what should you expect from that? <laughs> What's wrong with, what, what, what is inherently wrong with persecution? Well, of the no, self. No, I'm, I'm not making any valuations here. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, you, you've probably experienced this. Like, if, oh, of course just, I like, have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like, yeah, every, everything's exactly as you know it. Like, I don't have much new to say. I'm just saying, like, there's, there's no, like, like, out there, like, God that's going to, like, rush in at the last moment. There's no deus ex machina that's going to save you for telling the truth just because, like, it's so noble yeah. or whatever. <laughs> like, every, everything's just going to keep on going just as it's going. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> but, yeah, like, on a, on another level, um... Oh, yeah, the coronavirus thing. So, I, I feel like with the fragility, um... So, my take on this is going to be alchemical. I feel like, uh, alchemy is the best lens through which to understand the soul phenomena. So, there's, like... <clears throat> the metaphor of dissolution of like you of alkahest and then alkahest is like supposed to be the universal solvent it's what dissolves everything right and alkahest often is considered itself the final product of alchemy but also it could be considered like the step before crystallizing the golden elixir and i say crystallizing um like the particular metaphor of crystallizing because there's different metaphors for different alchemical processes. But I feel like that metaphor of dissolution by alkahest and then you evaporate away the alkahest and the golden elixir crystallizes, I feel like is the best kind of metaphor for uh, the situation that we're in now. Because I feel like, um, so not, not to essentialize uh, meaning making or not to essentialize understanding, but I, I think like, for example, as a person, um, as you grow in understanding or as your meta processes for making sense of the world evolve, uh, there's still going to be obstructions. There's still going to be um, these like there's still going to be inertia. There's still going to be momentum. You're going to be holding on to these beliefs and there's going to be parts of you that go 
unanalyzed. And because of that, they're they're gonna like perhaps there's there's going to be invisible parts of yourself that even if you have like this very sharp capacity for understanding that you hold on to these beliefs that you would never generate today just because you generated them before and you've never like thought to question them. And so I feel like with drastic social changes, with something like coronavirus destroys everything, it's it's a powerful act of dissolution. Like coronavirus is like an alchemist of our time that just destroys all these previous things that we we're holding on to. And so I feel like I, I talk about this at a personal level because alchemy generally is used to refer to personal dynamics, but it's also the hermetic saying as above, so below, as below, so above. And so the same process, I think, applies to societies. And as a society, on a macroscopic level, as a society and the members of society and whatever are ready to form new structures, form new institutions or whatever, because I feel like at a certain level, like everybody now know, knows that like things aren't working. Nobody's satisfied. And the very like dissatisfaction itself signals obstruction. If there's no obstruction, then you're not going to be dissatisfied. You're just going to be like trying to do new things. Um, so the presence of like conceptual dissatisfaction, I, I feel like always signals that you're holding on to something that could be let go of. Um, if, if Like if you're dissatisfied and you're not just doing something and you're thinking that you're dissatisfied, then that always signals that there's, there's some actual obstruction there that can be destroyed. And so I feel like as a society, if we're at a place where there's a lot of obstruction, then it's very good for something like Corona to come in as Alcas to dissolve it all. And from it for the crystal, for the golden elixir to crystallize. Um, and of course, like, whatever crystallizes, it's going to be at an equilibrium for now, closer to what, like, what is palatable to society now. So, like, I, I feel like a lot of people um, saying, like, things aren't going to go back to normal. I agree with that. Like, yeah, why would you ever reinstate things that don't work? Yeah, exactly. Like, why, like, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the act of dissolution and the golden elixir crystallizing from it. But at the same time, um... I feel like cal with any like monolithic behemoth, like any like <laughs> like it's it's the Leviathan, like any structure that's that's huge like that, there's gonna be some calcification and there's gonna be a resistance to change. There's gonna be inertia. And so that capacity to change, that capacity to mature before some like final enlightenment of all sentient beings equilibrium, any transient equilibrium before an actual enlightenment of all sentient beings type of thing is gonna be calcified and obstructed in a way that like readiness to change happens quicker than change itself actually does so it's it's just gonna cycle again i think like we're gonna be better off for now why is enlightenment of all beings the horizon i feel like enlightenment as i understand it basically is an infinite constant and recursive application of uh, the removal of obstruction. So enlightenment is the state without, totally without obstruction. So you could also think of it as like, um, I, I posted uh, on Twitter very pithily once, I think, um, enlightenment is like an infinitely powerful and infinitely recursive version of Occam's razor. So it's, it's ultimate parsimony. Like nothing that doesn't need to be there is there. And so what I'm pointing at, like these obstructions in society, these obstructions in the person, um, these things that you need, like the alka has to dissolve. These are the things that 
enlightenment gets rid of and enlightenment would be like a state where you're just like constantly submerged in outcast and new obstructions can't arise just because whenever they arise they're, they're immediately removed um <clears throat> so i feel like on on a personal level that uh you can do this like for yourself for your own perception for your own experience of the world but on a societal level it's something different and even if there's a few enlightened people in society obstructions can still arise there's emergent phenomena there's interactions between systems like the cybernetics of it all i feel like um actually i've been working on thinking about this through the um through the lens of non-linear dynamic systems um and like complex system dynamics uh all of that i feel like there's there's a lot of like uh i know like non-linear dynamical systems the maths of that is already very much applied in the social sciences but as far as i know nobody's applying it to the idea of um of enlightenment whereas i think that like that's such a clear and obvious analogy like there's really good work to be done there and i encourage like if if you're if you know the math like to the listener if you know complex non-linear system dynamics and you're also like into the spirituality thing i th i think it's it's very productive to think of enlightenment as the ultimate irreversible state so like in thermodynamics just to draw the most clear um analogy to thermodynamics which itself is an application of nonlinear dynamical systems um you have the idea of irreversibility how systems always evolve in one particular direction um and and there's there's certain criteria that make it so that um certain processes are irrever irreversible but these these are um very complex emergent uh, things that arise from even just like basic Newtonian laws and just the fact that you have a large system with a lot of moving parts like a very large um, degrees of freedom that it happens to be like this. How does amplitude death figure into that though? Because aren't there certain breaks in which these systems they just they cease interacting at a certain point but are you saying that's that's a that's a bigger part of the sort of non-linear system mechanism as a whole? Yes, ceasing to interact is never on, like, a total level. Everything is always interacting with everything else. And whenever you, you, you say these things like cease to interact, it's always a local kind of observation. Heuristics are useful within the context of the heuristic, but not they don't apply on a global level. No, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that's kind of interesting the way in which you have the sort of like continental merging with the analytic right now. You have people actually, instead of instead of thinking about things in these kind of like meta dynamic cybernetic ways, they're like, actually, no, I'm bored of that. I'm going to look at counterfactuals and modeling and, you know, things, things of that nature in order to make sort of bolder predictions through through localized measures but i actually kind of think that's boring and that actually never works actually i feel like the trend of the philosophical canon like just with the emergence of post-structuralism and post-analytic philosophy uh so you have like for example like Deleuze, um with his ontology of difference instead of like 
animism whatever and then you have merleau-ponty's phenomenology you have merleau-ponty's phenomenology is excellent mm -hmm. and you have uh like rorty post-philosophy like exploring the context of philosophy in relation to everything else and not philosophy as just this like self-contained body um and then in the post-analytic tradition you have like for example like quine quine putnam in determinacy of translation like all of these things i feel like so all of this is actually consistent with the Buddhist canon of Madhyamaka. Madhyamaka, it's it's translated as middle way. And basically, I feel like it's a particular kind of philosophical skepticism that is just the right kind of philosophical skepticism. And on like personally, I would just summarize the position as everything is obvious. Like if if you're introducing things that don't need to be there, then you're wrong. Um so like phenomena are are just as they appear and everything dependently arises from everything else nothing has independent existence you have your own consciousness and it's useful to assume the existence of other consciousnesses when you're like talking to people and stuff because that's valid cognition that's how it seems to be but um <clears throat> there's also no reason to like posit that absolutely to like say that moments of consciousness are something indivisible because you know like you fall asleep you have dreams and whatever so like Everything is just as it as it appears, and there's no need to create any like final system to capture it all. Of course, I'm I'm making gross overgeneralizations here, and it's a lot more subtle than that. But I feel like Madhyamaka basically is the correct philosophy, and I, I like it. There is um, there's a famous text in Buddhism, the Bodhicharyavatara, uh, translated as the Bodhisattva's Way, and the ninth chapter of it is said to be famously hard to understand. It's titled Wisdom. Personally, I didn't think it was that hard to understand, but basically, like, it's this, it's a scholar of Madhyamaka critiquing all these other schools of philosophy. So, for example, there's the mind-only school, um, which is, the mind-only school would be, like, the idea of, the Western philosophical idea of, like, subjective skepticism. So, like, the idea that there is no material reality, like the brain in a vat thing. And so, it rejects that and it critiques that and of course like brain of that that's like ridiculous why would you why would you think that your brain isn't that like it's just like that's that's dumb like um um and also there's a rejection of for example uh uh followers of ishvara who's like this monotheistic creator god and there's a rejection of like the idea of some external creator god uh there's a rejection of like all these things that have parallels to to pretty common western philosophies that have existed even in like into the 20th century and i i think that all the rejections there and like the the def like that defense of madhyamaka as well as other there's a lot of other texts on it for example i feel like um my favorite madhyamaka author if i were to recommend one would be yamgam mifam um rinpoche who is within like he's he would be a proponent of what's called the Rime school and Rime would translate to without bias. It's always, it's often translated eclectic, but directly it would be without bias. So basically it's the idea of like all the, tra all the traditions kind of have something to say, but like they're not intertranslatable. And I, I read about this elsewhere too. That's a whole nother tangent, but basically like, I feel like the Madhyamaka approach to things is just correct and obviously correct and basically when you reach enlightenment you intuitively and like obviously gain just certain understanding of madhyamaka and i feel like as a body 
Western academia, the philosophical canon, is pretty much converging to Madhyamaka, or at least converging to be consistent with Madhyamaka. And I think that's a good start. But at the same time, like nobody really understands post-structuralism. Nobody really understands post-analytic philosophy. And there's still like a lot of bad engagement with it. So that was kind of what I meant with like my meme post on Twitter. Like you have this like aesthetic engagement with Deleuze. And then you have like, you have the stuff that's useful for people today. Like now, like, okay, so like Heidegger and Nietzsche wrote like a hundred years ago. And like now people are like finally starting to understand them and like, like incorporate them into daily life like sure there's there's gonna be inertia there's gonna be momentum like that and but i feel like the at the edge of philosophy how um how post-structuralism is emerging how post-analytic philosophy is emerging even if it's not mainstream yet even within academia i I think that's that's a good start and i do hope that it's able to uh to prevail that the truth will conquer and that uh will be ushered into a new age. Yeah, this is this is inc- this is amazing. Like you have no idea how how good that was. I'm like blown I'm I'm blown away. I, I this has been yeah. Any fucking time you ever want to do something, I'm totally going to send clients your way. This is so good. Yeah, normies hate me. Who are some of your who are some of your enemies okay, that you well, get tangled? Here's with? the thing, right? Like I I've said this I've posted something on Twitter to this effect. I say like I'm just like I'm an agnostic, radically agnostic, evangelist, Budo Taoist, Catholic, post Marxist, unconditional accelerationist crypto neo-colonialist with chinese characteristics um and like all like it's 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 true like literally i'm I'm these things right but like who's gonna who's gonna understand that like it's just like it's a meme and like sure like hide my power levels whatever but at the same time like yes i'm like literally i'm ushering in like the second coming of jesus like i'm i'm all for the kingdom of god on earth like like and and, like but like how do how do i say this like my 18 year old like like these like neurotic stem incel weeps who are just like feeding themselves into the wage slave machine how do i interact with them right like so like with with the people around me i feel like i have this like I have this evangelistic impulse. I have this urge to like save them, like or the body thought as well. Enlightenment of all sentient beings, right? Like I want them to be enlightened, but at the same time, I want them to be happy. And so, like, look, I've I've had several experiences, where I guess just like speaking from the truth or like being genuine to myself, being genuine to my perception of things. Like people literally find me oppressive. People run away from me. Like I've I've triggered panic attacks in people just like just by saying things or whatever. I guess like um by by trolling them with with the truth and uh <coughs> and I, I i've been called both a schizophrenic and an autist by people who can't understand me um i've been i've been called a pee zombie from people who couldn't understand how i could be conscious <laughs> um, yeah yeah um and yeah so so i feel like there, there's definitely there's definitely kind of alienation um that comes with this kind of thing but I, I guess like I've I'm building my internet presence. Uh, of course, like th- in the real world, I'm limited by locality. Like there's only so many people around me. There's only so many people in the world that are gonna understand the things I'm saying. So of course, there's like this. The sets have to intersect, and there's like a low probability of doing that or whatever. So I'm expanding that by moving onto the internet. But at the same time, in the real world, um, that's where a lot of the antagonism comes from. And I feel like I I do have to like change my behavior to deal with that to like actually like be sociable and like live actively in the real world but yeah like the ideas that i'm spreading here are definitely not how i would live to my 
peers for, for various reasons. <laughs> I have to go, but anytime you want to do something or interact, I think this is this is incredible. I love everything. I'm like I'm a I'm a firm believer that someday you're going to you like you are the the future. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right.